Hey there, friends. LML here. Just a quick note before the podcast. Uh, I have been working hard on a lot of videos and I've gotten a little behind on my podcast audio editing. Shame, shame, I know. Uh, this is the audio from the Doom video that I put out about a week and a half ago. I've also got uh, Danny Q&A that I did about two weeks ago that I'm in the process of editing the audio down for. And then I just did a Dance with Dragons Danny live stream a couple days ago, which I also need to edit the audio for. So keep your eyes on the podcast feed. There'll be several things coming out in the next couple weeks. Apologize for the slight delay. And uh, the main reason for the delay is exciting, however. I'm working on a 23 days or 23 videos in 23 days with Quinn from Ideas of Ice and Fire. It's going to be on the 23 most anticipated plot lines of the Winds of Winter. Those will be coming out all during March, and we are working hard on those. So, again, thanks for the patience, and I've got lots of good stuff coming your way. So, enjoy the Doom podcast. This is one of two. I will be coming out with a Doom Part 2 in the next month or so, and I've also got some great Empire of the Dawn stuff coming. So, enjoy, and I'll see you soon. The Doom of Valyria is the biggest cataclysm in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, at least since the Long Night. But it's not only that, it's also the most successful conspiracy in the imaginary history of this imaginary world that we all love so much. It's commonly believed in the fandom that the Doom was carried out by the secretive cult of highly skilled assassins known as the Faceless Men of Bravos, largely based on logic and also the simple fact that the kindly man seems to make this claim to Arya when she's at the House of Black and White, the home of the Faceless Men. And although the Faceless Men and the city of Bravos as a whole had every motivation to want Valeria doomed, there is certain evidence that behind the Faceless Men was a hidden hand, or rather, a faceless dragon, one who stood to gain tremendously by the death of almost every other dragon and dragon lord in the world. House Targaryen, who were oh so conveniently left with a monopoly on dragons after the doom of the empire they had formerly been a part of. In other words, the doom was an inside job. Hashtag the doom was an inside job. So hey there, friends and mythheads, it's Lucifer Means Lightbringer, and thanks for watching. I've been conjured before you today by the support of the Mythical Astronomy Patreon community, so please check out LucifermeansLightbringer.com for the link to join our Patreon if you want more stuff like this, plus early releases, custom art, and exclusive content. You can also do us a solid simply by liking and sharing the video, that really helps. And make sure to breathe some dragon fire on that subscribe button and the notification bell below the window. It's made of Valyrian steel, it'll handle it. Now, I used to think this theory about the Targaryens hiring the Faceless Men to pull off the Doom was, you know, possible, but probably far-fetched. However, as I've studied it recently, I've become rather convinced. This isn't even my theory, actually. It's one of those ones that's just sort of been floating around the Westeros.org and Reddit forums pretty much since the World of Ice and Fire came out in late 2014, since that's where most of the clues about this conspiracy are to be found. AltShiftX made a great video about this last year, which I recommend, and I have a longer video with a live discussion about the Doom on my channel in the same playlist as this one. But today, we're going to nail this thing down, at least we're going to try to. First, I'm going to show you why I think the Targaryens hired the Faceless Men to pull off this incredible inside job, but not content to stop there, we're going to go further. That's right, 
By pulling on the threads of this deadly conspiracy, we can begin to explain the mysterious actions and hidden motivations of the faceless men since the doom. In fact, the faceless dragon theory, or if you prefer T plus FM equals D, actually compels us to completely re-examine everything we think we know about the motivations of the faceless men, as well as the motivations of the first Targaryens. And finally, the possible participation of the Targaryens in the downfall of Valyria, a 5,000-year-old genocidal slave empire, has important mirrors and echoes in the plot of Daenerys Targaryen, the last dragon, who uses her draconic power to free the slaves and slay the slave masters. But first, let's talk about that inside job. The year is 114 BC. That is, 114 years before Aegon the Conqueror is credited for his eponymous conquest of Westeros, and 12 years before the Doom. A cool summer breeze is blowing in off Blackwater Bay, and Aegon the Conqueror's great-great-great-great-grandfather, Aenar Targaryen, has just pulled off an amazing feat of planning, coordination, and execution. No, not the Doom of Valyria. He moved out of his old house that his family had lived in, like, forever. Before you walk, you gotta crawl. Twelve years before the Doom of Valyria, 114 BC, Aenar Targaryen sold his holdings in the Freehold in the lands of the Long Summer and moved with all his wives, wealth, slaves, dragons, siblings, kin, and children to Dragonstone, a bleak island citadel beneath a smoking mountain in the narrow sea. Now, all the other dragon lords laughed and called Aenar names, but I think he had a plan. One based on more than just this prophecy that we're told about. At its apex, Valyria was the greatest city in the known world, the center of civilization. Within its shining walls, two score rival houses vied for power and glory in court and council, rising and falling in an endless, subtle, oft-savage struggle for dominance. The Targaryens were far from the most powerful of the Dragonlords, and their rivals saw their flight to Dragonstone as an act of surrender, as cowardice. But Lord Aenar's maiden daughter Daenys, known forever afterward as Daenys the Dreamer, had foreseen the destruction of Valyria by fire. And when the doom came twelve years later, the Targaryens were the only Dragonlords to survive. As I said, very convenient for the Targaryens to suddenly be the only ones left with dragons, right? Was it prophetic foresight? Well, perhaps. But Aenar Targaryen also had a much more tangible reason to flee Valyria and head over to Dragonstone, and that would be trade. When Aenar relocated his family there in 114 BC, the World of Ice and Fire tells us that it had already been established as a Valyrian trading outpost for some 200 years. Dragonstone had been the westernmost outpost of Valyrian power for two centuries. Its location athwart the gullet gave its lords a stranglehold on Blackwater Bay, and enabled both the Targaryens and their close allies, the Valerians of Driftmark, a lesser house of Valyrian descent, to fill their coffers off the passing trade. Valerian ships, along with those of another allied Valyrian house, the Celtigars of Claw Isle, dominated the middle reaches of the Narrow Sea, whilst the Targaryens ruled the skies with their dragons. Aenar, you sly fox. You might have seen his daughter as a prophet, but I think he also must have seen the prophet of the narrow sea trade market. Prophet, see, not prophecy. Prophet off the sea, even. After all, Valyria and Westeros are both lands rich in resources and wealth, yet rather far away from one another, and would thus be natural trade partners. 
Better yet, the Valerians had that good, good steel that the Westerosi seemed to love, and setting up shop on Dragonstone positioned them to profit off of all of this. The World of Ice and Fire tells us a bit more about the founding of Dragonstone, which again, 200 years before Aenar Targaryen's arrival, it's also about 100 years after the defeat of the Rhoynar. With the destruction of the Rhoynar, Valyria had achieved complete domination of the western half of Essos, from the Narrow Sea to Slaver's Bay, and from the Summer Sea to the Shivering Sea. Slaves poured into the Freehold and were quickly dispatched beneath the Fourteen Flames to mine the precious gold and silver the Freeholders loved so well. Perhaps in preparation for their crossing of the Narrow Sea, the Valerians also established their westernmost outpost on the isle that would come to be known as Dragonstone, some 200 years before the Doom. No king opposed them, and though the local lords of the Narrow Sea made some effort to resist it, the strength of Valyria was too great. With their arcane arts, the Valyrians raised the citadel at Dragonstone. Two centuries passed, centuries in which the coveted Valyrian steel began to trickle into the Seven Kingdoms more swiftly than before, though not swiftly enough for all the lords and kings who desired it. And although the sight of a dragonlord flying high above Blackwater Bay was not unknown, it occurred more frequently as time passed. Valyria felt its outpost was secured, and the dragonlords thus continued their schemes and intrigues on their native continent. Ah, but what about the Dragonlords scheming and intriguing on Dragonstone, Aenar Targaryen? Well, I'm not sure how Aenar came to possess the title deed to Dragonstone from whomever had it before him. Maybe he won it in a game of high-stakes Sybass, who knows? But we can see that it worked out very well for him and his, and not just because they survived the doom, but because Lord of Dragonstone was simply a lucrative position to be in. Demand for Valerian steel was high, and this supply tightly controlled and flowing through Dragonstone. So with some 227 Valerian steel weapons said to be floating around Westeros, we can surmise that Aenar was stacking gold coins to the rooftops. Now, I suppose it's possible that Aenar was just a very mystical dude and knew that he should absolutely make huge life-changing decisions based on interpreting the scary dreams of his 12-year-old. Hey there, honey, uh, wh wh what you drawing? Oh, this is the doom, daddy. I see it in my dream every night. Yes, I suppose it is possible that Aenar fled Valyria based on this prophetic warning and then just happened to blunder into a fabulous opportunity to become extremely wealthy but I think it's more likely that he was simply a forward-thinking dude for his day. The profitability of Dragonstone was plain to see, having been well-established by Aenar's time, but apparently none of the other powerful Valyrian dragonlords could ever imagine living anywhere but their fabled palaces in Valyria. They're basically like the people who can only live in downtown Manhattan or like the cool part of San Francisco or whatever. Therefore, it fell to a lesser dragonlord like Aenar Targaryen to take this opportunity and make the most of it. And that's just what he did. I don't rule out the possibility that Danny's the Dreamer's visions were real, and we'll come back to that. But as you can see, the move did make plenty of sense for purely economic reasons. It also made a lot of sense if old Aenar the Exile, as he came to be known, helped plan and finance the Doom. Stand well away from the Blast Zone, as they say. In fact, let's talk about that Blast Zone, known as the Fourteen Flames, where we can try to pin down the basic mechanics of the Doom so that we can understand just how Aenar is fingerprinted in this whole affair. After all, it's not enough to simply point out a motive. 
Clearly, there are potential advantages to having a monopoly on dragon power, but we also know that Targaryens do occasionally have prophetic dreams which turn out to be accurate. And thus, it really is possible that Aenar and his family survived the doom because he had the wisdom to heed his daughter Daenys. Daenys the Dreamer's credibility is also bolstered by the respect given to signs and portents, the book made up of her visions. So we're going to need a pretty strong case here to blame, or perhaps credit, Aenar the Exile Targaryen for the Doom of Illyria. Valyria. It was written that on the day of the doom, every hill for 500 miles had split asunder to fill the air with ash and smoke and fire, blazes so hot and hungry that even the dragons in the sky were engulfed and consumed. Great rents had opened in the earth, swallowing palaces, temples, and entire towns. Lakes boiled or turned to acid, mountains burst, fiery fountains spewed molten rock a thousand feet into the air, Red clouds rained down dragonglass and the black blood of demons, and to the north the ground splintered and collapsed and fell in on itself, and an angry sea came rushing in. The proudest city in all the world was gone in an instant. Its fabled empire vanished in a day, the lands of the long summer scorched and drowned and blighted. An empire built on blood and fire, the Valerians reaped the seed they had sown. The Valyrian Empire was founded on a highly volcanic peninsula, as you can see on this map. The Fourteen Flames, elsewhere referred to as the Burning Mountains of the Fourteen Flames, are presumably the 14 largest active volcanoes on this peninsula. In general, we should think of Valyria and the Doom as largely parallel to the Roman Empire and the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, only bigger and with magic. Have you ever looked at a dollar bill on weed? Have you ever erupted a volcano? On magic? So how does one live on top of an active volcanic range for 5,000 years without some sort of Vesuvius-type incident? Well, the answer is sorcery, and it seems the Valerians carefully controlled these 14 flames with their powerful sorcery. This passage from the World of Ice and Fire, speculating on the cause of the doom, is rich with clues, so pay close attention. To this day, no one knows what caused the doom. Most say that it was a natural cataclysm, a catastrophic explosion caused by the eruption of all 14 flames together. Some septons, less wise, claim that the Valyrians brought the disaster on themselves for their promiscuous belief in a hundred gods and more, and in their godlessness they delved too deep and unleashed the fires of the seven hells on the freehold. A handful of maesters, influenced by fragments of the work of Septon Barth, hold that Valyria had used spells to tame the Fourteen Flames for thousands of years, that their ceaseless hunger for slaves and wealth was as much to sustain these spells as to expand their power, and that when at last those spells faltered, the cataclysm became inevitable. Of these, some argue that it was the curse of Garen the Great at last coming to fruition. Others speak of the priests of Relore calling down the fire of their god in queer rituals. Some wedding the fanciful notion of Valyrian magic to the reality of the ambitious great houses of Valyria have argued that it was the constant whirl of conflict and deception amongst the great houses that might have led to the assassination of too many of the reputed mages who renewed and maintained the rituals that banked the fires of the Fourteen Flames. Wedding fanciful notions together, huh? That's just what we're here for. No, in all seriousness, we are being given all the pieces to the puzzle here. 
All we have to do is wed the very realistic notion of Valyrians using potent sorcery to bank the fires of the Fourteen Flames with the equally realistic notion of setting off a volcanic chain reaction by the targeted assassination of the mages whose responsibility it was to maintain those fires. And who was thought to have put such assassinations into motion? Rival Valyrian houses. Houses like House Targaryen, with their safe island retreat hundreds of miles from Valyria, and with their fists and pockets stuffed full of Westerosi gold from that lucrative narrow sea trade. The kind of gold you'd need to pay for a bunch of faceless men to carry out multiple coordinated assassinations. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Let's unpack what the maesters are saying here so you guys don't think I'm leaping to conclusions. Though the maesters are somewhat skeptical of Valerian sorcery, they do acknowledge its existence. And Septonbarth almost certainly has the right idea when he talks about mages using spells to bank the fires of the Fourteen Flames. It would be very like the way a blacksmith carefully banks the fires of their forge to the precise temperature needed for whatever metalworking they might be doing, and I think this makes a lot of sense because, again, the Valerians successfully lived and thrived on top of volcanoes for 5,000 years. The only way to bottle up volcanoes for an extended time like this would be sorcery. It's not something you can do in the real world. And we know that the Valerians were in fact powerful sorcerers who dealt in the mediums of fire and blood. And here I can't miss the opportunity to dispense the Marwyn the Mage wisdom as given to Sam Tarly in A Feast for Crows. What feeds the flame? asked Sam. What feeds a dragon's fire? Marwyn seated himself upon a stool. All Valyrian sorcery was rooted in blood or fire. The sorcerers of the Freehold could see across mountains, seas, and deserts with one of these glass candles. They would enter a man's dreams and give him visions, and speak to one another half a world apart, seated before their candles. Do you think that might be useful, Slayer? We would have no more need of ravens. That is some very powerful sorcery, as are the acts of forging unbreakable magic swords, shaping molten stone into strange, fanciful, and ornate shapes such as we see at Dragonstone and such as we would see in Valyria before the Doom, and of course, magically bonding with dragons and occasionally popping out deformed lizard babies. The Valyrians also seem to have gone the way of Dr. Moreau, only Lovecraft, at Gagossos in the Basilisk Isles, so that's more very powerful and dark magic. Thus, I think it's safe to conclude that the Valerians did indeed use their potent sorcery to achieve and maintain some sort of manageable volcanic equilibrium all across their subcontinent, and this sets things up perfectly for the Faceless Men. Consider the Faceless Man Credo. Nobody expects the Faceless Men! Our chief weapon is murder. Murder and surprise. Surprise and murder. Our two weapons are murder and surprise and taxidermy. Our three weapons are murder and surprise and taxidermy. An almost fanatical devotion to the god of death. Our four. No. Amongst our weapons are... Oh, I'll come in again. Now, whether or not you expected a sort of Spanish Inquisition, you see the point here. I like Monty Python a lot. No, the, the actual point here is that the only thing keeping these massive volcanic mountains in check were a handful of fire mages, punching away their time cards for the Fire Mage Guild. Even the blind maesters of Old Town can put two and two together here. The simplest way to cause the doom would have been to assassinate a few of those mages. Enter the Faceless Men, who happened to be highly skilled assassins with a potential grudge against Valyria, and who, importantly, have confessed to the crime. 
This is from A Feast for Crows, as the kindly man, as the head faceless man is called, explains the horror of the Valerian slave mines to Arya, and how the faceless men began when one person heard the slaves crying out for mercy. All gods have their instruments, men and women who serve them and help to work their will on earth. The slaves were not crying out to a hundred different gods, as it seemed, but to one god with a hundred different faces, and he was that god's instrument. That very night he chose the most wretched of the slaves, the one who had prayed most earnestly for release, and freed him from his bondage. The first gift had been given. Arya drew back from him. He killed the slaves? That did not sound right. He should have killed the masters. He would bring the gift to them as well. But that is a tale for another day, one best shared with no one. So they aren't exactly publicly taking credit for the doom, but here in the dim halls of their temple of death and weird taxidermy, the kindly man is spilling the beans to Arya. Bringing the gift to the Valerian slave masters can only refer to the doom. And again, we can see just how they could have done it with the exact skills that they possess. Killing the mages, keeping even one of those volcanoes in check, may have been enough to set off a chain reaction. And the faceless men would have been capable of killing the mages in multiple locations at the same time if they had wished. Or if someone had paid them to do so. The Assassin's Guild, known as the Faceless Men of Bravos, typically work for hire, though I believe there are clues that they have their own agenda and may do things for their own reasons. Certainly, we can see the reason that they might want to exact this kind of total revenge on the Valyrians, as they trace their origins to escaped slaves and refugees from Valyria. They might have seen it as revenge, or simply as cosmic justice according to their beliefs about life and death. But whatever the case, they suffered greatly at the hands of the Valerians and saw the full horror of their existence up close, and may have thus decided to wipe them out once they had the power to do so. However, the Faceless Men are primarily in the business of charging exorbitant amounts of gold to carry out their assassinations. However, the Faceless Men are primarily in the business of charging exorbitant amounts of gold to carry out their assassinations, and that may have been the case here as well. There's a very interesting passage in the section of the World of Ice and Fire about the Westerlands and the Lannisters, and this is the one that got the forums buzzing back in 2014 and 2015. The gold of the West has traveled far, and the Maesters know there are no mines in all the world as rich as those of Casterly Rock. The wealth of the Westerlands was matched in ancient times with the hunger of the freehold of Valyria for precious metals, yet there seems no evidence that the Dragon Lords ever made contact with the Lords of the Rock, Casterly or Lannister. Septon Barth speculated on the matter, referring to a Valyrian text that has since been lost, suggesting that the freehold sorcerers foretold that the gold of Casterly Rock would destroy them. <laughs> what, what was that now? How could the gold of Casterly Rock help destroy Valyria? Well, enter a crafty old Aenar Targaryen, pockets flushed with all that Westerosi gold, and specifically some of that Casterly gold. The sword Brightroar came into the possession of the Lannister kings in the century before the Doom, and it is said that the weight of gold they paid for it would have been enough to raise an army. 
The plot thickens. Those vain Lannisters, knowing them, they probably weren't content with just your standard issue Valerian steel sword, like the Stark's humble greatsword ice. Oh no. You know they wanted the jewel-eyed lion heads all over the damn thing, ruby-encrusted everything, elaborate gold craftwork, the whole nine. Three fullers, not two, thanks very much. So they paid a king's ransom for it. Uh, how did they put it? Enough gold to buy an army. Enough gold to buy an army is also enough gold to buy, say, 14 faceless men. Last time I checked guild rates, and more seriously, I'll point out that this is a wordplay clue meant to imply that the gold from the sale of Brightroar paid for a destructive force. Not a standard army, but instead a small army of faceless men. In fact, enough gold to buy an army is almost the exact phrasing that Peter Baelish uses to describe the cost of hiring the faceless men when King Robert and the small council are debating about how to assassinate Daenerys in a Game of Thrones. Hat tip to YouTube user Kaspar Mathiasen. On Bravos, there is a society called the Faceless Men, Grandmaster Pycelle offered. Do you have any idea how costly they are? Littlefinger complained. You could hire an army of common sellswords for half the price, and that's for a merchant. I don't dare think what they might ask for a princess. Again, these are just the type of wordplay clues that George relies on to feed us hints about his various mysteries. The gold of the Lannisters will destroy Valyria. The Lannisters paid enough gold for Brightroar to raise an army. The cost of raising an army is comparable to the cost of buying faceless men. The Faceless Men love trading assassinations for gold, and the Faceless Men also probably destroyed Valyria. Put it all together, and you have T plus FM equals D. And for what it's worth, Bright Roar is a pretty not bad way to describe the simultaneous eruption of an entire chain of volcanoes. Crucially, we can be reasonably certain that this ransom of Lannister gold was paid to the Targaryens of Dragonstone because of those passages we read earlier. It was specifically said that Valyrian steel flowed more quickly into Westeros after Dragonstone was founded, implying that the Westerosi-Valyrian steel trade would have specifically flowed through Dragonstone, and thus it's likely that those rich Lannisters bought Brightroar from the Valyrians on Dragonstone. They bought it sometime in the century before the Doom, so that would have been either Aenar Targaryen himself or whomever was there before him. George choosing to write the date as in the century before the doom seems like intentional vagueness to me, so as not to completely give it away, but I think it's likely that this sale was between Aenar Targaryen and the Lannister King of the Rock of that time. For what it's worth, Ned's ice is described as being 400 years old from before the doom, and though that seems like a bit of an approximation, it does date the sale of ice to the Starks to just before the Doom, which is also roughly dated to 400 years ago. And that's exactly the time when Aenar Targaryen would have controlled Dragonstone. Here's the thing. In order for that bit about the gold of Casterly Rock destroying Valyria to have any meaning at all, we need a way for it to be involved in the Doom. And we have one sitting right in front of us. We know a very large sum of that casterly gold was paid for Brightroar some time not long before the Doom, and logic suggests that it was paid to the Valerians living on Dragonstone and selling Valerian steel to Westeros. We've already figured out that the Faceless Men almost certainly initiated the Doom by assassinating mages, so the missing link is simply the idea of Aenar Targaryen using that casterly gold from the sale of Brightroar to hire the Faceless Men to kill the mages and cause the Doom thus leaving Aenar Targaryen and his progeny as the sole remaining dragonlords in the world. It's a fait accompli. 
In him the prophecies are fulfilled, for he has used the cursed casterly gold to destroy Valyria. It's the most successful conspiracy ever plotted and carried out in the history of Planetos. Well, apart from the conspiracy to hide the true cause of the Long Night, the destruction of the Second Moon. But apart from that, yes, this is some top-rate scheming. Anar Targaryen could give Varys and Illyrio a few lessons. Anar, you sneaky bastard, you. Time out for symbolism. For those of you familiar with my basic moon meteors cause the long night theory and the symbolic pattern that it creates, you'll find that this faceless dragon theory fits that pattern to a T. Hat tip to Samantha at 479SAM on Twitter. Here's a very quick recap. Up in the sky, the sun appears to send its red comet sword plunging into the heart of the moon, which drinks the fire of the sun and cracks, creating a shower of moon meteors that fall to the earth and cause a global winter and darkness. On the ground, Solar King Azora High plunges the Red Sword Lightbringer into the heart of his wife, Nissa Nissa, who is the Lunar Queen. We are clued into this sky-ground parallel by, among other things, the fact that Nissa Nissa's cry of agony and ecstasy at her death was said to have left a crack across the face of the moon. And Azora High is, in turn, famous for waking dragons from stone, which could mean waking stone meteors from the moon, and for being reborn under a bleeding star, the Red Comet, or sometimes when the stars bleed, when shooting stars fall from the sky. Notably, Azor High and Nissa, Nissa are said to have lived during the time of the Long Night, and in the East there's even a parallel myth of the Bloodstone Emperor murdering his sister, the Amethyst Empress, to cause the Long Night, and that one specifically involves an account of a magically evil black meteorite that fell from the sky. Hello, the color out of space, and yes, I believe that is an intentional nod. So getting back to the Doom, the Golden Lions of Lannister play the role of the Sun. Valyria, the home of the dragons, plays the role of the Moon, which of course is symbolized as an egg full of dragons waiting to hatch, according to the Carthine myth that Danny hears in A Game of Thrones. Crafty old Aenar Targaryen and the Faceless Men that he conspires with would play the role of the Red Comet, taking the Sun's fire to the Moon by force and destroying it. Then, dragonglass and the black blood of demons fall from the sky, along with actual dead dragons. And all of these symbolize falling dragon meteors and bleeding stars. It's a pretty good match, and of course it makes sense for the author to draw parallels between the Long Night and the Doom, the two greatest magical natural disasters in the story. Alright, so we're going to stop here for today, but we still have a whole host of questions to answer in part two. Such as, why did Aenar Targaryen do it? Was it really just to be the only dragonlord left standing? Why didn't Aenar Targaryen then seem to do anything with his dragons once he was the only dragonlord left? Why haven't the Faceless Men ever done anything to kill the remaining dragons of House Targaryen, either on Dragonstone or later in King's Landing? Why did the Faceless Men agree to work with Aenar Targaryen to begin with? Did any of Aenar's descendants know about his deal with the Faceless Men? Will Daenerys learn of this hidden history of House Targaryen, and how will it affect her future decisions? What are the intentions of the Faceless Men concerning Daenerys? How about that book about dragons that the Faceless Men stole from the Citadel of Old Town, and that dragon's egg that they probably received from Euron? What are their intentions with those? We're going to tackle all those questions and more in part two. And like I said at the top, the answers will cause us to completely reevaluate everything that we think we know about the motivations of the Faceless Men and House Targaryen. If you enjoyed this video, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to like and subscribe down below. 
Check out the YouTube channel for other videos about Danny's Endgame, what King Bran the Green Seer will actually be like in the books, what sorts of terrible things Arya might do with the wolf pack, how the conclusion of the White Walker plotline will be eminently more satisfying and complex in the books, why The Witcher can be retold as The Rhaegar Show, and more. Check out LucifermeansLightbringer.com for our Patreon link and everything else mythical astronomy. And I'll see you next time with part two. Thanks, everyone. Chief weapon is murder. Murder and surprise. Surprise and murder are two weapons. Murder and surprise and taxidermy are three weapons. Are murder and surprise and taxidermy and an almost fanatical devotion to the god of death are four. No. Amongst our. Oh, let me come in again.